Good morning, Longview Point Church family and guests. We're glad that you have chosen to gather with us this morning and to tune in with us today. My name is Jason Ford, and I'm the missions pastor here at The Point, and I want to welcome you. A few things that I want to just bring to your attention this morning as we get started. One thing I want you to be aware of is we have a lot of online opportunities for you to be engaged with during the week. We've got things going on for children, for youth, Wednesday night teaching, a lot going on. One that I'd like to highlight to you is on Friday nights on our church's Facebook Live page, we have our Celebrate Recovery. And that is at 6.30 p.m., and that's for folks with hurts, habits, and hang-ups. And listen, just about each one of us could raise our hands to that. So I would encourage you, if you've never joined us, check in with us at our Facebook Live Celebrate Recovery at 6.30 on Friday night. But make sure you're going to the church website and paying attention to things that are going on online in the life of our church right now. Also, in April, we are having our North American Missions Offering Emphasis, and that is to support church planters that we're partnered with, and even beyond that, as a denomination, we support, we cooperate together to support missionaries and church plants all across North America. So I'd encourage you to continue to give towards that. So far, you have given faithfully to the amount of $17,943. And and for the rest of this month, you can continue to give towards that online or designate that as you give. Thank you for that. And also thank you for your response with giving in uh, oil that goes to our local food pantry, to our interfaith food pantry. Uh, we as a church contribute towards that. So thank you, uh, those that have given towards benevolence so that we can give towards that need. And those of you who have brought oil that we can give towards that. Um, Another thing that you might not be aware of, since the beginning of this uh, lockdown, shelter-in-place time that we've been in, we have been ministering to three major hospitals in our area by giving snack bags to ICU workers. And in that, we've put information about our church and how folks can engage. And so I would just encourage you, Today, this morning, as you gather together and in the coming days, lift up those ICU workers that are working long hours and just on the front lines of this and know that we as a church family are trying to express our love and prayer for those folks. So be praying for those that are working in those environments. And listen, if you have needs in your family as an individual, things going on in your life, please, please, please reach out to us. We as a church family want to come alongside you. We want to support one another in these days. I know that there are a lot of different strains with uh, many things going on in folks' lives. So if you have needs, we want to come alongside and help meet those needs in your life. And one of the best ways that you can reach out and connect to us, you can call the church office. But we also have an email that you can contact us through, and that's prayer at longviewpoint.org. Prayer at longviewpoint.org. If there are things in your heart that you need prayer about, that we can, as a church staff, as pastors here at The Point, lift up to the Lord, please send us a note so that we can know what's going on in your life and lift those things up to the Lord. 
Listen, I pray that you are gathered and that you're ready to worship this morning, spend some time looking into the Word and being taught, and let's just go to the Lord right now in prayer and ask His blessing on this time that we are meeting together in this way and seeking to lift high the name of Jesus. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that we can come into your presence, scattered though we may be. Father, we can come to you, and you are near. You are not a God who's distant. You are a God who is near. You are all-knowing. You are all-powerful. Lord, you're sovereign. You rule. You reign. And Lord, we choose to place our faith, our hope, our trust in you and in you alone. Lord, in days when in the news and all around us, there seems to be so much uncertainty and change from day to day. Lord, we have a rock, an anchor, and we are thankful. Lord, we are thankful that we can come to you with our needs, with our hurts, with our struggles. And Lord, that you are sufficient. You are enough. And Lord, I pray today through the worship of our hearts, through the teaching of your word, that you would minister to us in special and deep ways, Father, that you would change us. Lord, mold us and make us. Change us into, the, into who you long for us to be, Father. Lord, this is your time. Use it for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning, church. Just as you're in your living room this morning or, or maybe watching this on a phone, whatever, whatever you're doing, wherever you are this morning, I want you to think about how worthy he is, how worthy God is of our praise. And You know, in Psalm 8611, it says, the psalmist says, give me an undivided heart. And, and I looked up the word undivided and it meant to solely be concentrated on or solely uh, dependent upon one thing or concentrated on one thing. And, and so this morning, let's be 100% concentrated on Him. Lord, give us that undivided heart this morning that we can sing and declare praises to Your name. There is an endless song Echoes in my soul I hear the music ring And though the storms may come I am holding on To the rock I cling how can I keep from singing your praise? How could I ever say enough? How amazing is your love? How can I keep from shouting your name? I know I am loved by the King, and He makes my 
I will lift my eyes in the darkest night, for I know my Savior lives, and I will walk with you, knowing you'll see me through, and sing the Trouble times sing when I win. I can sing when I lose my step and I fall down again. I can sing cause you pick me up. Sing cause you're there. I can sing cause you hear me, Lord, when I call to you in prayer. I can sing with my legs. Breath. Sing for I know that I'll sing with the angels and the saints around the throne. How can I keep from singing your praise? How could I ever say enough? How amazing is your love? How can I keep from shouting your name, I know I am loved by the King, and He makes my heart. I am loved by the King, and He makes my heart. I am loved by the King, and He makes my heart. Wanna tries to roll over my bones when sorrow comes to steal the joy I own when brokenness and pain is all I know no I won't be shaken no I won't be shaken cause my fear doesn't stand a chance when I 
stand in your love my fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your love my fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your She no longer has a place to hide And I am not a captive to the lies I'm not afraid to leave my path behind No, I won't be shaken No, I won't be shaken Cause my fear doesn't stand a chance when I Stand in your love, my fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your love, my fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your love. Cause there's power that can break off every chain. Oh, there's power that can empty out the grave. Oh, there's resurrection power that can save. The power in your name. The power in your name. There's power that can break off every chain. You give hope, you restore, 
Every heart that is broken Great are you, Lord It's your breath in our lungs So we pour out our praise We pour out our praise It's your breath in our lungs So we pour out our praise to you only You give life you are love, you bring light to the darkness, you give hope, you restore every heart that is broken. Great are you, Lord, it's your breath. In our lungs, so we pour out our praise. We pour out our praise. It's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise. You only, it's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise. We pour out our praise. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise to you only. And all the earth will shout your praise. Our hearts will cry, these bones will sing, great are you, Lord. And all the earth will shout your praise, our hearts will cry, these bones will sing, great are you. Sing that out. And all the earth will shout your praise. Our hearts will cry. These bones will sing. Great are you, Lord. And all the earth will shout your praise. Our hearts will cry. These bones will sing.
Set aside any distractions as best you can as individuals or as families. Uh, put aside anything that might uh, hinder you and your concentration on the Word of God this morning and our study time or even a distraction from what God's Spirit uh, desires to do in your heart. The passage we're going to be studying this morning is 1 John chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. 1 John chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. I'll give you a moment to find your way there, and then we'll read together. Uh, one of the things that I want to sort of press this morning is how immensely practical the teaching of 1 John is for us. There's so many issues that John addresses that are really pressing issues for us in our culture. I suppose there's an extent to which this is true in, in every era and every generation, but, but there are some issues that John really deals with forcefully here uh, that are worthy of our attention and some deep consideration. First John challenges and shoots down what I think are three major worldview issues in Western society. Uh, we've touched on these along the way, but here in our introduction I want to press on these a little bit because I, th I think they're critically important and the third of these is addressed with force in the passage that we're going to be considering. Last week, we talked about the misunderstanding of John's opposition, whereby they separated doing works of righteousness from being a righteous person. In other words, they would say that you may be a righteous person in spite of the bad things that you do. There's an effort at separating the spiritual person from the physical person. It's an ancient heresy that's been around forever and ever and ever. It manifests itself in our society with sayings like, uh, he or she is not a bad person, they just do bad things. 
John makes it abundantly clear in the passage that we looked at last week and then and again the text that we're going to look at this week that whoever does not do what is right is not of God. There is no separation between our works spiritually and our works physically. We are one person. We are redeemed in full. And the power of the gospel that saves our soul has a tremendous impact on, on, our, on our heart and the way that we live our life. I was having a conversation with an old friend just this week whose spouse is going in to uh, have a heart surgery that he himself had had uh, a few years back. And I, I can remember our praying through uh, the, the days leading up to his surgery. And his, his major concern was that this open heart surgery was going to change his personality for the worse. That's a, a common experience of people who have uh, heart surgery, especially an open heart surgery, that somehow it changes their personality. And, and the, the strange thing is that even in the natural realm, when a person's heart is touched in that way, it changes their conduct, it changes their outlook, it changes their behavior in great ways. Surely if this is true in the natural realm, it's true in the spiritual realm, where, where we are touched by the gospel of Jesus Christ, our lives are forever changed from that moment forward. There, there is an issue, secondly, that I find myself running into from time to time in gospel conversations, and I suspect that you have as well, where there is a want to divorce the gospel of Jesus Christ from the church of Jesus Christ. People will say things like, well, I believe in Jesus, but I, I don't believe in organized religion. That's generally the way that's cast. John makes it crystal clear in 1 John that it, that it mustn't be this way, that it cannot be this way. He says of those who have defected, who have left the fellowship of the church, they were among us, but they went out from us in order that it might be made manifest that they were never genuinely of us. And then a third struggle that, that I think has been a struggle throughout the history of, of the church, at least among those who have identified with the church on some level, there seem to be in each generation efforts at saying, I love God, but I'm not so much on this group of people or this particular person. In other words, I love God, but in some way I hate or mistreat the people in my life or a particular group of, of people. John makes it crystal clear in the passage that's before us this morning that we simply cannot say that we love God legitimately without at the same time loving our brothers dearly. And these correspond to various tests that John give, gives us in 1 John, tests for evaluating our faith, tests for examining ourselves to see that we are in the faith. These are cast in a variety of different ways. This is not a novel approach to 1 John. Virtually every study of 1 John will focus on the test of faith that John gives us or these ways of evaluating our, ourselves that we are in the faith. I call them here the test of faithfulness. John says, if you love Jesus, you will walk in the light as he is in the light. You will uh, conform your life after the pattern established for us by Jesus. We will come obediently under the commandments of Jesus, the test of faithfulness, that we faithfully obey the commands of Christ. There's the test of fellowship. 
Um, John says again, if you were, if you are a, to be a, a part of the church, if you are to be a part of the body of Christ, you must be a part of the church physically, involved in the fellowship and in the life of the church. And then here, in, in a more uh, intimate way, John says, not only must you be in proximity to the church, in the fellowship of the church physically, but there must be uh, love for your brothers. You simply cannot say that you love God without loving the brothers. And then the test of faith that appeared periodically in the book of 1 John, specifically 1 John chapter 5, where John says, I've written these things in order that you might know that you have faith in Christ, that your eternity might be settled and sealed, and there might be a, a certainty within your heart about your eternal destiny. Before us in our passage is a, a firm, a, a stern pastoral word about the call of Jesus on our life to dearly love our brothers, to love those around us. 1 John chapter 10, we're going to begin, or chapter 3 rather, verse number 10. We're going to begin at the beginning of verse 10 for the sake of, of, of fluidity here or, or uh, so that we can move smoothly but, smoothly, but we're really going to pick up in the second sentence of verse number 10. Verse 10 says, this is how God's children and the devil's children are made evident. Whoever doesn't do what is right is not of God, especially the one who doesn't love his brother. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Unlike Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. The one who doesn't love remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Again, John speaks so clearly. In, in fact, at certain points, it's difficult to expound upon what, what John has, has said. Last week's passage was challenging, to say the very least. John says, sin is the breaking of the law, and you know that he was revealed so that he might take away sins, and there's no sin in him, and everyone who remains in him does not sin. Any effort at communicating that is almost necessarily softening the force of what John is saying in that passage as we seek to understand how it is that we have been redeemed from sin. Christ has come to destroy the works of the devil, and yet there continue to be um, these, these bits of sin in our life. We continue to struggle with a nature that is inclined toward sin. The spirit is willing in us, but the flesh is ever weak. And yet John says it so beautifully and so clearly and at the same time so forcefully. So be careful in your efforts at understanding what John is saying here that you don't push back so much that you insulate yourselves against the force of John's teaching. Let's go back to verse 10 and that second sentence of verse 10 where we left off in last week's message. John says again, whoever does not do what is right is not of God. This is going to be a little bit repetitive. Anytime you're studying the book of 1 John, there's going to be repetition. You cannot outline 1 John in a linear fashion. He's always circling back to ideas or concepts that have previously been discussed and often dealing with them in greater depth or greater detail. Here John makes clear again what we discussed at some length in last, week, last week's message that righteousness is the distinguishing mark of the righteous. That righteousness, 
is characteristic of the righteous. That those who have been born again will be marked by righteousness. Now let's wrestle with this for a moment because I suspect that some of you have been wrestling with this since the last time that we were together. What John is not suggesting is that when we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, that we never struggle with sin again. In fact, what he's saying is that we do struggle. We struggle mightily with sin. The example that I like to use is the example of Abraham's life. If you go back and you look at Abraham's life from the moment the Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness. Abraham struggles at different points. He, he lies on Sarah, his wife, and then he lies on Sarah, his wife, again. He, he has the incident with Hagar that was marked by distrust for God's promise, and it was certainly out of step with what God's plan for marriage is. There were mistakes that mark Abraham's life. But if we back away from the full picture of Abraham's life, the composite makeup of Abraham's life was that of righteousness. And the good that we observe in Abraham, the righteousness that we observe in Abraham, is the direct product of the, of the faith that Abraham placed in God that was accredited to him as righteous. When we are accounted righteous by faith in Jesus Christ, the gift of God's grace to us, it has a, a deep and lasting impact in our life. It shapes us. It changes us. It makes us over. It molds us into the image of His Son. I've, I've wondered in the days since last week's message, and I even wondered as I preached on last week, how John's message sat with you. Again, speaking in such a straightforward way, John says, whoever does not do what is right is is not of God. God has called us to be holy even as He is holy, a standard to which we will strive for all of our life and all of our earthly life will come short of that standard. But the goal is, the point is, the exhortation of this text and countless others is that we wrestle with and we struggle with our sin, that we live a life that is consistent with the confession that we've made, that if we say with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord, that our, the whole of our life be lived in subjection to Jesus' lordship over our life. There are a number of, of troubling um, doctrines and ideas that we could touch on and, and deal with here. Often, I hear people say things like, at a certain age, Jesus became my Savior, but only many years later or sometime later did Jesus really become the Lord of my life. And I just want to challenge you that the New Testament never speaks of the Lordship of Jesus in these terms. That everywhere Jesus is Savior, He is Lord. Again, for us, it's not a perfect science. It's not as though we master righteousness at the moment of our regeneration. We're wrestling with and we're struggling with our sin. But it ought to be an undeniable reality that something new has been begun in us. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. We have now, by faith in Jesus, been raised, made alive in Christ Jesus. That ought to be an observable change 
in each of us. There, there ought to be a change in the beginning and progressive change as God sanctifies us through the word of his spirit. So if, the, if, if, that, if that passage especially doesn't sit well with you, this idea that everyone who remains in him does not sin, everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. Again, John's not talking about one sin. He's talking in, in the Greek present tense here, which means we continue or we persist in the same old patterns of sin. If that doesn't sit well with you, I just want to challenge you that that's not really my commentary on the text. That is the text itself. Everyone who remains in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. And I want to caution you in that passage and in the one before us tonight, or this morning rather, in verse 10, whoever doesn't do what is right is not of God. Don't explain away the power or the force of that text, but wrestle with it under the conviction of God's Holy Spirit as is necessary for you. John says, and this is the first simple truth of our text, that righteousness is the distinguishing mark of the righteous. And we know that the righteous are those who have placed faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Again in verse 10, whoever doesn't do what is right is not of God. That's the segue into what remains of verse 10 and the following verses. He goes on to say, and not only must we do what is right if we're of God, those who do not do what is right are not of God, but especially the one who does not love his brother. So the subject of the following verses is going to be our love for our brother. We ought to do what is right. The righteous are characterized by righteous deeds. But among the righteous deeds that are to be named among the brethren, perhaps uh, among the chief of those uh, deeds that should be named among us is love for brother. We're given two great commandments by Jesus, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Here John, again, is, is pressing the, the value, the importance, the critical nature of loving our brother. In verse 11, John says, For this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Again and again in 1 John, John revisits the basics of the gospel. Perhaps his opposition is bringing a new teaching. John seems to counter that with the idea that I'm not bringing to you a new teaching, but a message that you've been hearing from the beginning. This is how 1 John begins in chapter 1. And again and again, this theme is picked up. John says, this is not a new teaching. This is a reminder of what Christ taught us in the beginning, what we learned in the basics of the gospel, that we should love one another. Yes, the other night our family was in John 13 and we were looking at that famous passage where John helps his disciples to understand, this is how the world is going to know that you are my disciples because you have love for one another. Far too often there's vitriol and there's backbiting and there's uh, less than understanding between brothers or between the church and, and even the world. I, I think we speak with a sharp tongue at times when a word of, of mercy might be more appropriate. Jesus says the distinguishing mark of the disciple is the love that they have for one another. John says here that a major part of the message that we have heard from the beginning, gospel basics dictate that we should love one another. And then he gives us an example of how to not love your brother. 
And he gives us an example from an actual uh, pair of brothers, brothers who are brothers by blood. In verse 12, he says, Be unlike Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, if the world hates you. So he takes the example of Cain and Abel to say, here's how you don't want to do it. And I think he takes this example for a very good reason. Let's turn back in our Bibles for just a moment to Genesis chapter 4 for the story of, of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel are the sons of Adam and Eve, and uh, they seem to be going about their life, and things seem to be going relatively well. At least that's the way chapter 4 begins. But the Bible reads and tells of the story of Cain's murdering his brother Abel. Again, this is how you don't do it. In verse 1, the Bible says, Adam was intimate with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, I have had a male child with the Lord's help. Then she also gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the Lord's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious and he looked despondent. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious and why do you look despondent? If you do what's right, won't you be accepted? But if you don't do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? And he replied, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, I think John chooses under the inspiration of God's Spirit this illustration for a very particular reason. Here, here are actual brothers who are supposed to have a deep and abiding love for one another, and yet Cain murders his brother Abel. Cain is motivated, the Bible tells us in 1 John, by his hatred for his brother's worship. Abel does what is right, Cain does what is wrong, and as a result, Cain is jealous of his brother Abel and ultimately murders him. Now, I want you to think with me for a moment about who Cain is and how this story sort of unfolds. And I, I want you to be reminded, first of all, that the opposition party for John's congregation doesn't come from outside the church, but in some ways from inside the church, at least among those who would identify themselves as believing people. Now, Cain is not, in Genesis 4, an atheist. Cain is not someone in the book of Genesis who comes from outside of the family of God's people, at least as we would understand it in Genesis 4. In fact, Cain is a deeply religious man. What we find them doing in Genesis chapter 4 is actually involving themselves in worship. Abel brings his sacrifice. Cain brings his sacrifice. Abel's is acceptable. Cain's is not. Cain is evil. Abel is righteous. And here is the enmity that ultimately results in the murder of, of, of Abel. 
There's a word of caution for us here, a word of warning for us here. Some of the world's greatest haters couch their hate in religious terminology. The justification for their mistreatment and hatred of other people is often religious. It's true in our day and age in Muslim extremism, and it's been true in former generations through Klansmen who burned crosses in the yards of, of their victims and those they sought to terrorize. But it's been true in generation after generation after generation. There is a real uncanny knack in the heart of sinful men to justify in religious terminology their mistreatment or their hatred of other people. Cain is a worshiper but he worships according to his own self-styled manner. Brothers and sisters, it's a reminder of us. Genesis 4 stands as a reminder to us, if we needed one, that we don't get to set the terms on which we worship God. We worship in spirit and in truth. That is, filled with the Spirit of God and directed by the truth of God's Word. We don't worship even according to the dictates of our heart, but according to the dictates of God's Word. Now, the hope is, the prayer is, that indwelt by the Spirit, the dictates of our heart align with the Word of God. But our heart is not the final answer. Our heart is not the final word. God's Word dictates for us how it is we should worship. And God's Word dictates to us who it is we should worship, namely Christ and Christ alone. Cain hated Abel and murdered him because Cain worshipped God in a manner consistent with God's commandment, and he did not. John says there ought to be some level of expectation for the believer in the gospel that the world will hate us because of our love for Jesus. John understood this well. He had walked with Christ. He seems to have, although from a distance, remained with Christ even up until his final breath. He was there at the cross. Jesus seems to speak to John, conveying responsibility for his mother Mary to John, the beloved disciple from the cross. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. John was the beloved disciple, the one Jesus loved Deeply, there seems to be a special friendship between Jesus and John. John is the inspired author of John chapter 15, where Jesus instructed us, If the world hates you, don't be shocked by this, for you know the hatred that the world had for me even before it hated you. It's sort of part and parcel of walking with Jesus that the feeling the world has toward our Savior is the feeling the world has toward those who would worship Him in spirit and in truth. If we walk with Christ, we ought to have the expectation that the world will regard us in the same way it has regarded our Lord. The world that said, crucify Him, crucify Him. There ought to be an expectation that there are some difficulties that come with walking with Jesus. John says, love your brother, but understand that the fact that you love your brother won't always result in your brother loving you in return. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, unfortunately, this always needs to be said on the back end of this kind of teaching. If the world hates you, the world should hate you because of your love for Jesus, 
not because you're a jerk. And there seems to be a, a want on some level with some folks to generate hostility toward themselves or hatred toward themselves, uh, an unwillingness to, to speak in a way that's seasoned with grace and kindness and mercy and, and compassion, uh, a, a want to revert to the table-turning Jesus, not the Jesus of the cross that says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I realize there's no real separation in those two persons, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. But I suspect you're tracking with me. And you know the kind of uh, venom with which we can speak that does stir hostility in the hearts of those that we would seek uh, to share the good news of the gospel with. And I just want to remind you that our goal in evangelism is, is to persuade men, women, boys, and girls of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not, not, to, not to turn them away from the truth of the gospel because of some quirk or the harshness of our personality. So John says very plainly, love your brother, but don't expect that your love for brother is always going to be returned favorably. It's a reminder to us that the love that God is calling us to, to demonstrate to our brothers, to those around us, this goes beyond family brothers. This goes beyond our, our, our brothers by relation. This is love of mankind. Love those around you. Love your neighbor. It's not the kind of love that the world knows or observes. The kind of love that Jesus calls us to is a deep and abiding love, a, a, a love that is patterned after that of Jesus, a love that says yes from the cross, even as they crucify him, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. A love that's willing to show mercy and compassion even when our hearts are broken at our mistreatment or persecution, whatever it is that might come our way. So uh, John is clear. There are going to be some challenges that come with loving your brother. And, and any time that I teach this whole idea of loving your brother and talking about forgiveness in this way and, and grace and mercy towards those around us, there's always a, a long line of folks with questions and there's email responses and what about this scenario, what about this, what about that? And, and we, could, we can walk through all of those. It's a, no case is like the other. But at the end of the day, there is a plain and simple truth here that that a distinguishing mark of the follower of Jesus is the love that we have for other people. That, that we're the people who go out of our way to show love and grace and mercy and kindness and compassion to those around us, even those around us who are perhaps by our estimation, by our natural estimation, altogether undeserving of our acts of, of kindness. But there's more in our passage. Look at verse 14. John says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brother. The one who doesn't love remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. I go back again to verse 14, the beginning of verse 14. John says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. We've, we've titled this series, This We Know, or, or This Is How We Know, because the phrase, the language of this is how we know, or this we know, appears over and over and over again in the epistle. John says, these are landmarks for you. 
These are indicators for you in your life that grant certainty and assurance. These are things that you might look for in your life, and if they're present, their presence gives you confidence, it gives you security, it gives you assurance that indeed you are in the light as He is in the light, that you are walking by faith in Jesus, that you are in Christ, as the Apostle Paul would say, that your destiny is set for heaven. John says here in verses 14 and 15, your love or your hatred for others is indicative of your eternal destiny. If you love your brothers after the example of Jesus, in the way that Jesus has called us to love them. Now, he didn't say if you just love your friends, that, that that's a pass. No, Jesus said, if you only love your brothers, you're no better than the Pharisees who love all of their brothers and their friends. But if you love even your enemy, this is the kind of love that I have in view for you. John says, if you love in this supernatural, in this unnatural way, in this way that is patterned after the love of Jesus, it ought to be an assurance to you that you are in Christ. And for good reason, because it's not natural for us to love in this way. It's not natural for us to love outside of our circle or our particular group. I think all of us uh, grow in different ways. God is at work in all of us in different ways. But this is one area where, for me, early on in my walk with Christ, God really did a tremendous work in me. I, I think I was a young man with a lot of hostility and bitterness and, and angry, anger, and that expressed itself in a variety of ways in my teenage years. But the, one of the first real observable changes in me was the inability to treat in an uncompassionate way with hostility and, and anger and hatred others around me. This is one of the earliest things that I began to pick up on in the scriptures. Somehow along the way, we get blinded to the most obvious things in the Bible. But you simply cannot get around the call of God from Genesis to Revelation that we love those around us, even those who are unlike us. I think the first Bible book that I ever set out to study was the book of Jonah. I didn't know anything about the Bible, but I knew something about the story of Jonah, and it was only four chapters, so I thought, well... I can go there, and it's a manageable-sized book, so let's dive deep here. And, and immediately, this idea of loving those who are unlike us, loving, in the case of Jonah, those who are outside of our ethnic or demographic group. Jonah's called to go and to love the Ninevite people. This is who we are. It's in every book of the Bible, on every page of Holy Scripture. You think of the New Testament and the, the, the Jewish and Samaritan relationship. You think of Paul's writings and the conflicts that exist between the Jews and the Gentiles, specifically the book of Galatians where Paul charges Peter to his face for the mistreatment of others who weren't in his circle or network of friends or his religious group. Paul says, I withstood Peter, the preeminent apostle, even to his face because what he was doing was so out of step with, with who we are. Think of the book of Revelation with people of every tribe and tongue and nation are gathered about the throne of King Jesus, worshiping him with one voice. I, I can't overstate the extent to which 
It is in the DNA of Christian folk that we would love those around us, regardless of how the world would see them, regardless of the mistreatment that they might experience at the hands of others. We're to be the people who stoop and bow, towel and basin, and minister and serve even what Jesus described as the least of these. If you have that kind of unnatural, supernatural love, it, it ought to impart confidence and assurance that indeed Jesus is Lord over my life. That although I was once dead in sins and trespasses, I'm now alive in Christ Jesus. Because in my natural man, I don't have the capacity to love other people in this remarkable, supernatural way. Again, John says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. The one who doesn't love remains in death. This, this ought to be a scary verse for the racist. This ought to be a scary passage of Scripture for those who harbor deep and abiding prejudices. This, this ought to be a, a, a fear-inspiring verse for those who regard themselves as superior to others. Not only is it completely out of step with the Christian ethic, it's completely out of step with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, harboring that kind of hostility, that kind of hatred, that kind of prejudice in our heart precludes us, John says, from the family of faith. The one who does not love remains in death, John says. He goes on to press further in verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. John, perhaps remembering the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, you've heard it said of old, whoever murders is subject to judgment or liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. That everyone who hates his, his brother is, or who accuses his brother is liable to the council. The one who calls his brother a fool is liable to hell's fire. Jesus presses on that commandment and says it's more than an external thing. It's what we feel in our heart toward those around us. John says here in verse 15 that to harbor hatred, animus toward your brother is on par with the act of murder. In fact, he identifies haters with murderers and points out that we know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. John is not saying that a person who's committed the act of murder has no place in the kingdom at any point in time. The vilest of sinner, the most heinous of sin, may be forgiven under the blood of Jesus Christ. He's simply saying that that attitude, that, the, that lack of love and compassion and mercy for those around us is, is not only characteristic uncharacteristic for the believer, but that it's characteristic of those who are outside of the family of faith. It's hard to speak much clearer than what John speaks here. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers, and the one who doesn't love remains in death. Thinking about the test of, of faith, these tests that John gave us, we talked about in our introduction I, I wonder how we might measure ourselves against those metrics, the, the test of, of fellowship. 
I am more convinced than I have ever been before that we are hardwired for fellowship. And as believers, we are hardwired for fellowship within the body of Christ. I didn't believe it before, but I certainly don't believe it now after these weeks of being in isolation and separated from you all as a congregation. But I simply cannot fathom that there is any way that a blood-bought believer in Jesus Christ, a member of the body of Christ, could be at any peace whatsoever outside of the fellowship of the church. If you don't long for, if you're not desiring for, if you don't just have this great big void in your life this morning to be with the body of Christ, I want to challenge you that you would examine yourselves to see that you're in the faith. I wonder how you might measure yourself against the test of faithfulness. When you look at your life, I've often described it this way. Jesus says you'll know a tree by its fruit. A good tree bears good, good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. If you look out across the limbs of your life, are you bearing fruit? That's an indication that the root is really healthy. Are you bearing the kind of fruit that would indicate to those around you that you're in a right relationship with Jesus Christ? Are you walking obediently with Him? Now, I suspect that for some of us in the solitude of the past weeks and the solitude that's presumably yet ahead, we've, we've been forced to reckon with who we are in some fresh and perhaps scary kind of ways. How do you measure up against the test that John gives us here. Whoever does not do what is right is not of God. That righteousness is characteristic of those who have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. What, what, what about the, the test of love that John puts before us here? Can you genuinely say without caveat that you love the people God has placed in your life? That you love those around you? I think a telling way, a way that we can really know that there's a sincere love for those around us is our willingness to take the good news of the gospel to them. What greater violence could we do the world around us than withholding the life-saving message of the gospel, the message that might redeem them from their sin and save them from an eternal hell? Sharing the good news of the gospel is a good indicator of a deep and abiding love for the people that God has placed in your life. Do you know Him? Do you love Him? I mean, do you really know Him? Do you really love Him with all your heart and soul and strength and mind? Can you honestly say that Jesus is the master over all your life? I hope that you'll evaluate yourselves against these standards. For me personally, as a pastor preparing for these messages, I found many of the verses in 1 John to be intimidating. And, and I just, again, one last time, I, I want to warn you against protecting yourself against the force with which John speaks. Whoever does what is right is of God, but whoever doesn't is just frankly not. Wrestle with these passages. Commit time to prayer. Don't quench the work of God's Spirit in your heart as conviction comes. Serve Him faithfully. Love Him with all your heart. And with an unnatural, supernatural power, through the Spirit that abides in us, love well the people that God has placed in your life. Let's go to Him in prayer.
Father, thank you for your word, for its truth. Thank you, Lord, for the convicting power of your Holy Spirit. God, I, I pray that your spirit is wrestling with the members of our fellowship, wherever they are this morning, that in living rooms and around dining tables and over iPhones and in front of laptops and televisions, God, I pray that you would lay us bare, that we'd be forced to reckon with the truths of this text. God, we can't help but consider how short of your standard we come when we look at these passages. And we know, God, oh, we know that our only hope of standing with boldness and confidence at the day of judgment is the shed blood of Jesus. So wash us white as snow, clothe us in his righteousness, hide us behind his perfect work, and enable in us, God, new heights of obedience, the capacity for love and compassion and mercy, and a hunger for the fellowship of the church that's not our own through the indwelling of your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you have done for us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, I want to encourage you to reach out to us and let us know how the Lord's at work in your life. Maybe this morning you have a young person or there's someone in a watch party with you that you've been sharing the gospel with, or, or maybe you have settled down on a Sunday morning and you're watching along with us and you've come to terms with your lostness and you want a saving relationship with Jesus. Nothing would delight us more than to hear from you and how the Lord's at work in your life. In fact, however it is that the Lord's at work in your life, I hope that you'll reach out to us and make us aware of that. Give us the chance to counsel with and encourage you in the next steps in your journey with Jesus. Uh, the numbers for our pastors are before you. You have a number of options through email and messages in a variety of ways, comment sections on the platforms uh, that you're watching on to let us know how the Lord is at work in your life. I, you, you simply cannot know how it would make our day to have the chance uh, to talk with you about what the Lord is doing in your life and to counsel with and encourage you. So please do us the favor of reaching out in those ways. It is my prayer that on the back end of this whole season, what we come to realize is that God has been drawing a great net through this, through this season, that he's been seeking and saving the lost in ways that perhaps even the leadership of our church has been unaware of. I, I trust, I pray that in this window of time that you are growing in grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So again, I just want to encourage you to reach out to us. It, it will be our joy to hear of what God is up to in your life. I, I want to encourage you and challenge you to continue to give faithfully. We're going to be updating you uh, in your, through email as to where we are uh, financially, and we'll continue to do that. Uh, moving forward, you've been faithful to give sacrificially, and I want to challenge you to continue to do that. In the same vein, if you have needs, financial, emotional, family needs, spiritual needs, what, whatever the case would be, reach out to us and let us know. We'd love the chance to minister in any way possible. Hey, I miss you more than you could possibly know, and I can't wait to be able to see us all together uh, in our worship center again, all together worshiping King Jesus. It's going to be a great, great day. I hope it's sooner rather than later, but until then, God bless and walk faithfully with Jesus Christ. See you soon.